Join me in praying. Father, thank you for just a reminder from the songs that we have sung together. Uh, these are ancient words, but they are ever true because they are your words. The psalmist reminds us forever, O oh Lord, you have fixed your word in the heavens. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. When we store your word in our hearts, we, are, we have all the tools we need not to sin against you. And so as we come to your word tonight, we pray that you would speak to us through it, change us, Lord, and conform us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're excited to see all of you, just thankful, just know that uh, we have been praying for, for what happens on Wednesday nights, and we have been praying for you, and we're thankful that you're here tonight. And I want to continue our time in God's Word as we look at part two of what we've titled The Body of Christ and the overall series, as I mentioned even last time. We've titled this, We Believe, as we walk through the doctrinal statement of our church. You know, at the heart of an organization, uh, of any organization, really is a group of individuals or an individual who serves in the capacity called as a leader or leadership. Uh, they impact and they influence. And the ones who lead the organization, they're the ones who lead an organization. A manager manages while a leader directs or sets a vision. Leadership. You know, in a non-church kind of a setting, this is typically the individual with, with a drive, with confidence, with talents, and with charisma, and perhaps an education at an Ivy League school. But what almost comes always at the end of such a list is humility, humility. But what comes at the end of the list of qualifications for a worldly leader is really at the top of the list when it comes to God's church. God's criteria is antithetical to the world's criteria of what a leader should be. Paul reminds us of this upside-down way of looking at things from a world's perspective, and he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. You know, all the qualifications listed earlier may be helpful to lead well. Uh, nothing inherently in and itself that I've stated earlier is, is wrong. But the core of a worldly leadership is really the leader himself. The core of biblical leadership, on the other hand, is not the individual, but the one who is their Lord and the Lord of everyone who is a part of that organization or institution, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is a huge difference. You know, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, last time when we were here, I quoted that. Why is it that that is the difference? But Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It is he who builds the church. He, he says to Paul, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, 
that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of, gates of Hades will not overpower it. The question then is, how does Jesus build his church? What does the Lord do to accomplish this? What is the Lord doing even right now to accomplish this? Now we could say many things here, but the process we can say began with our Lord selecting his immediate disciples, known as the apostles, and then the apostles were taught and instructed by the Lord. They then wrote down the things that he taught, and they did that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, before he left them, he said to them, these things I have spoken to you while I was abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Well, that, that is not you and me in view here. It is the immediate apostles to whom he had said things and instructed things, and that Jesus is telling them that the Holy Spirit will bring to their mind the things that I taught. And that's exactly what happened as you look at the rest of the New Testament. Uh, that which was written down was faithfully then handed down to us. What do we find in God's word? We find the birth and growth of the church as we look at the book of Acts. Also in Acts, we find how the church moved from one place to another in terms of its growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in one sense, we are still in the book of Acts because where Acts 28, which is the last chapter of Acts, ends, and then Revelation chapter 6, which is the next event, in, in the last things, where that begins, we are in that period in between. The next event is the rapture of the church, which then is immediately followed by the tribulation. And that's mentioned in Revelation 6. So in a sense, we are between Acts 28 and Revelation 6. That period is still going on. The book of Acts then provides for us an example of how Christ is building his church. Then and even today. And one way he is doing that is by how the local church is organized and, and led. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We are talking about how Christ is building his church. And one of the ways he does that is by how the church is organized and, and led. Just to refresh your memory a little bit, uh, th this particular event is happening after the Pentecost, which takes place in chapter 2, and now the church is growing. By this time, there's 5,000 individuals who are a part of the church at Jerusalem, and the church is growing. And so the initial leaders of the church are finding difficult to do certain things. So follow with me as I read from Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, that is, those Jews who were from Greece, against the native Hebrews, those Jews who were from Israel or Jerusalem. A complaint arose because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we, we may put in charge of this particular task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. The elders or the apostles at that time, they said, we can't be involved in doing this and at the same time do justice to teaching God's word. So you need to appoint individuals who are filled with the spirit and of good reputation that they may take this task. And this, thus is established uh, the, one of two offices that exist in the scriptures and exists even now, and this is the office of the deacon. When Paul and Barnabas and others went on missionary journeys, what did they do? One of the examples we find is in Acts 14, verse 23. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul, in writing to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he says this to Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so one way that Jesus is building his church is by the way it is organized and led. So leadership or biblical leadership would be the specific thing that we can say. In our time today, we are continuing the second part of what we started last week. And last week when we met, we looked at the first three things that you have on the list there. We looked at what is a church? We looked at the meaning and the metaphor of a church. We looked at the origins of the church. And then thirdly, we looked at the objectives of the church. Today, our plan is to look at the last three things on that list. The organization of the church, the ordinances of the church, and I was going to say the organs of the church, but that can communicate a lot of different things. So I've titled it The Marks of a Biblical Church Member or a Healthy church member. So those, those are the things that we plan to look at today, the organization of the church. Now typically there have been three kinds of church organizations or church governments, if I, that is a more technical world. This particular area is called the church government. There are three large categories or forms of church governments that have taken place in the history of the church in terms of how they are organized. The first one is what we call as the Episcopalian kind of model. In this form of church government, there is a distinct category of church officers known as the priesthood. Uh, and the key distinction here is that the final authority for decision making is not found in the local church, but it is found outside the local church. So like you see on the screen here, you have the congregation, which is a local body, and then they are overseen by a rector who is then overseen by a bishop who is then overseen by archbishop. It comes, this word episcopus, episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopas, which means an overseer. An overseer is a, is a man charged with the duty of seeing that things are done by others, are done rightly. So it's more like a superintendent of the church. But what you should notice here is that the authority to make final decisions doesn't rest in the congregation. It's someone who is beyond the congregation, a rector or a bishop or an archbishop. An example of this kind of a model is the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, for example, would be one example. The Lutheran and Methodists are also organized in, in this way. Next, we have the Presbyterian model of church government. Uh, this is the form of church government that is led by elders. Uh, these elders have authority not only in their local congregation, but even beyond 
their local congregation over other churches. Uh, Presbyterian, it comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means an elder or an older man is also another way that this particular word is defined. Uh, These are those who have presided over the assemblies or churches. You will see here too, the final decision does not rest in the congregation, but there's a session of elders who are themselves uh, responsible to the presbytery who ultimately is responsible to the general assembly. The difference between this model and the previous model is that there's a group of men here compared to one individual that was in the previous model. Let me go back to, to that one. We see there's an individual who is overseeing a congregation and here it's a group of men which is called the presbytery. Uh, what would be an example of this, uh, Presbyterian churches would be one example, the other would be some, some of the Reformed churches are structured in, in this way. There's a third model that we have, it's the congregational model. It's a response to an individual outside the congregation having the authority. A response to that is the congregational model. What is this? This is the form of government where the final governing authority rests with the local congregation. Uh, some examples of these kind of churches would be Baptist churches that we have, Mennonite churches, evangelical free churches uh, would be some examples. Now within the congregational model, we have two sub-models within that. The first one is what you have on the screen here. It's a single elder or a pastor-led model. The pastor here is acting, for lack of a better word, like the CEO of a company. He is kind of the go-to person for everything. The congregation does, make, does have the authority to make decisions, to hire and fire the pastor, but for all practical decisions, he's the one who people go to for a final decision. Then, the other model is this one. It is still a congregational model. Uh, this is the plurality of elders model. There is a main teaching elder, like is highlighted here, but he's a part of a plurality of leadership as the elder Uh, which is the elder board. And that is the model that we follow here at Countryside. You know, one of the conclusions that you can draw from some of the passages that I read earlier, uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and Acts chapter 14, and from other passages, is this, that there was no church small enough to have only one elder. Every time a church is mentioned, elders, plural, is is, is, is accompanying that. So there's a plurality of leadership in that sense. So the one elder congregational model, which was the previous one, uh, does not have much of a scriptural support for that. What we find, rather, is this one, where there is support throughout the scriptures for a plurality of leadership. The second conclusion you can draw from the various passages is that there were not diversity of forms of government in the church as we find today, but there was only a plurality of leadership that always existed. Now, there are certain situations where, let's say in a church, there are three elders and two elders have resigned or moved on. There are certain circumstances for a time period, we can have one elder and we can understand that. But that is not a biblical pattern for long-term life of that particular local church. Always there are elders, also called as pastors or pastor teachers, who governed the church and kept a watch over it. So that is as far as the 
church governance or government is concerned. Next, as we think of how a church is organized and led, we think of the role of an elder. Uh, here we are thinking of what an elder does. We're not yet thinking of who an elder is, but we're still thinking what does an elder do? It's a biblical term. And so what does an elder do? Well, first of all, I've mentioned about seven things there. There are, uh, there are more that we can add to this list, but this is at least a representative kind of a list for what an elder does. First of all, an elder is involved in teaching. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul, as he goes through a list of qualifications of elders, mentions this as something that an elder does. He is to be able to teach. Ephesians 4.11, Paul says, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, or pastor-teachers. The elders are expected to teach. They are to exhort in sound doctrine, says Paul to Titus. Secondly, an elder refutes false teaching. They confront sin and error. In Titus 1.9, as Paul gives a list of qualifications for elders to Titus, he says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he, that is an elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That is, refuse those who are in sin and, uh, and are in error. That's what an elder does, refutes false teaching. Thirdly, an elder keeps watch over the souls of those who are under his care. In Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. How does an elder watch over the souls? Well, he preaches and teaches and applies the word of God to individuals that are under his care. That's how an elder keeps a watch over your souls. Usually when an issue comes up, whether it's sin or it's just uh, error-laden decisions that are made by individuals, you know, I preface what I'm about to say to individuals by this, I know this will hurt you, but know that I truly love you, which is why I want to tell this to you. Keeping a watch over your souls. Fourthly, elders protect the flock. Elders protect the flock. Paul, as he is departing, and he knows this is the last time he's going to meet the elders who are serving as elders in Ephesus, at the church in Ephesus. This is what he says in Acts 20, verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves. Why don't we turn this so that you know, you probably are still in Acts. Why don't we turn to Acts 20? And notice verse 17. He says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And then he goes on to share a number of things with them which Luke records for us. But notice verse 28. This is what he says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You notice one thing there? It is the Holy Spirit who appoints elders. Of course, he uses men in this church to do that, 
but it is the Holy Spirit who appoints overseers. Lord willing, on this upcoming Sunday, we will have one such occasion in our own church. Let me encourage you to be there as that happens. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flocks. Of course, as you read that language, you don't think it's actual wolves that are coming, but this is the false teacher and the false prophets that he has in, in mind. And from among your own selves, verse 30, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And notice verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. What is Paul encouraging the elders at Ephesus to do? Be on the alert. Watch over the flocks. Protect the flocks. The, the picture is that of a guardian, of a watchman who's keeping watch. Uh, fifthly, it's governing. Elders are to govern. Uh, that is, they are to manage and they are to be good and godly stewards. Paul, to, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In the same book, Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, he must be one who manages his household well. Uh, leaders, elders govern. Uh, sixthly, they care for the practical needs of the flock. In James chapter 5, verse 14 James writes, if is anyone among you sick, then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. Elders care for the practical needs of the flock. We, we do have uh, a care ministry uh, as a part of our church uh, that oversees meals uh, for people who are sick, uh, that oversees meals for moms who have just delivered babies and uh, there, there's care ministry that oversees a number of other things, widows and widowers and uh, those who are involved and, uh, in the shut-in ministry. Those are all care ministries of our church and an elder oversees those. And then finally, elders are also involved in correcting. Uh, perhaps not, uh, uh, not the most easiest of discussions to have, correcting a, a sheep that is in error, but that is the task of an elder. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, and then he says this, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Correction. That is what an elder does. That's a sampling of what an elder does. There's a number of other things that are involved, but this gives you a good overview of what an elder does. But who really is an elder? What are some, some of the qualifications of an elder? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are two lists that are mentioned. Neither of them are exhaustive lists, but they are very comprehensive in nature and cover almost everything that is needed from an elder. Uh, one list is mentioned in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 9. And then this is the second list, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's just walk through that list that is there. We, we can't go into detail of every qualification, 
but I'll, I'll at least comment on each one of them as we go through. What is an elder then? Who an elder is? First of all, Paul writes, uh, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. Uh, so an elder is not someone who is forced to be in that position. No, he is someone who desires to be in that position. And then the men around him and the church ultimately in the end acknowledges that God has gifted such a man in this way. But notice verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. He must be a man of blameless character. He should be a man, a husband of one wife, that is one man, woman. He, that is, he is committed to and faithful to his wife in a monogamous marriage. Thirdly, uh, he says he should be temperate. That is, uh, he is, should be one who is self-controlled, balanced in judgment, not rash or rushing to judgments. Uh, fourthly, it says he must be prudent. Uh, that is, again, one who exercises good judgment. Then he should be respectable. Uh, that is, he must be someone who is sensible and properly behaved and orderly and, and structured. He also should be hospitable. Uh, that is, he should be one who welcomes strangers. Uh, one of the good things uh, that I love doing is, because now our church is growing so much, um, is to regularly interact with people who are new to our church. And so if I see someone that I don't know, I'll usually go to them and say, hey, I'm really sorry, I've never said hello to you. Uh, my name is so-and-so, and then they say, well, I'm glad you came in and spoke to me. I've just been coming here for the last few weeks. Um, I would encourage you to do that. Being hospital is to welcome strangers. And then he mentions something that is not essentially a character quality, but an ability. At the end of verse 2, he says, able to teach. Uh, this is the only qualification, by the way, that differentiates an elder from a deacon, where in a deacon's list, which immediately follows this one, it's not mentioned as a requirement from a deacon. That does not mean that a deacon cannot teach. We have many deacons in our church who do teach. It means that elders are expected to be teachers. And fulfilling this requirement is really one of our strengths here at Countryside. All of our leaders Every one of our elders are involved in teaching. Notice verse 4, uh, verse 3 rather, not addicted to wine. An elder must not be one who is preoccupied with overindulging um, nature when it comes to wine. Our drunkenness, the Bible describes as, as sin. Uh, what kind of an example will an elder lay for others if he puts himself and others on a slippery ground? I remember when I was being hired for this position that I'm in right now, uh, the pastor who was hiring me, who's not here anymore, um, he, he shared with me as they were looking for different candidates, they came across an application of this one pastor who was serving as a pastor in California. And uh, they just chanced upon this one message that he was listening to and he said, uh, he was listening to this message that this pastor was preaching and this pastor was saying, you know, I understand when you get upset at things. Um, when I get upset at things, I just go down uh, to this, uh, this bar that is close to my house. I welcome you to join me uh, if, if that's where you are. And so this pastor was telling me, his name is Pastor Rocky, many of you know him. He said, uh, we're not going to hire that man uh, here. 
And again, uh, as I mentioned a couple of times, even in, in the previous sessions, drinking itself is not a sin, but being drunk under the influence of alcohol is certainly. And, and I, for one, would not want to put myself on that slippery ground. Not addicted to wine. Notice he is also not pugnacious. Uh, you know, pugnacious person is one who's always looking for a fight. I mean, even if there's nothing to fight about, he's always has this attitude of, of, of fight or violence in him. He's a bad-tempered, irritable, and out-of-control kind of a man. An elder is not to be like that. Uh, next, the elder is to be gentle. Uh, he is to be one who is known to be a kind man, a magnanimous and a gracious man. This is, this is that attribute that brings peace and healing among God's people. He is to be gentle. Also, he is to be peaceable, that is uncontentious. This is one who is a considerate kind of a person, one who establishes peace. He is a peacemaker. Uh, he is also one who should be free from the love of money. An elder is one who uh, is not to be greedy when it comes to money. He's not to use the ministry and people for his personal profit. We're still in verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well. He must be one who is able to lead and care for his immediate family before he cares for the family of God. And then it says, uh, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Uh, in in, in Titus, he mentions a man uh, uh, who's looking to be an elder is, has to have children who believe. Now, does that mean that only children who believe uh, that man, uh, that the, the father there, is to be an elder? No, it means they are to be found faithful because someone's salvation is not in human hands. It is a spirit that works in their heart. Uh, they're not, not that they are to be believers, but they are to be faithful. They are to be responsive to the authority of their parents is what the idea is. And then it says here in verse 6, not a new convert. Why? So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That is, he would not be, become puffed up with pride. Uh, when, the, when you appoint a new convert as an elder not be in the best position to handle the visibility that comes with that role. So don't appoint a new convert, says Paul to Timothy. Also, at the end, in verse 7, he says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. That is, he must have a consistent testimony inside and outside the church. Imagine a man, you know, for some time he's able to deceive those who are in the church by how he behaves, but if you were to ask his work colleague, tell me something about this man, and he were to say to you, you know, he's not a man that we can depend on. He says that he will do this, but he doesn't do that. Uh, he's not someone that is considered a faithful man at his workplace. Uh, that is what Paul has in mind here. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. As you look at this list, the focus almost entirely seems not to be on the giftedness of this man, but on the character of this man. I remember when I just uh, moved, we just moved as a family from Charlotte to, to North, uh, North Carolina to, to Dallas to come to seminary. One man who was accused of adultery was removed by the elder board 
uh, from his position as a pastor. But within a month and a half, he was back in the pulpit. And it goes against the very spirit of what Paul is saying here. Is he a man about reproach? Not in my view. I also have to admit, I don't know all the details of that circumstance, but certainly looking from the outside doesn't seem like a month is going to be enough for that man to be about reproach. And so these are very real issues as you think of the different churches that we have come from. But also, if the Lord were to move you from here, you know what to look for as you look at this text. And so we've considered the meaning and the metaphors for the church, the origins of the church, the objectives of the church, the organization of the church. That brings us then to the ordinances of the church. The ordinances of the church. Now, biblically speaking, what is an ordinance? An ordinance is a practice that is directly established or commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we must remember that they're not requirements for salvation, rather they're visual aids. They're visual aids to help us to remember and to appreciate what Jesus Christ accomplished for us through his redemptive work and their testimonies that we indeed believe in Christ. So how do we define ordinances? Let me define it for us. They are symbolic reenactments of the gospel message. It's the most simplest, and I think, and hopeful, and I'm hopeful that it's a clear definition. It's, an, it's a symbolic reenactment of the gospel message. Now, throughout the history of the church, there has been a lot of confusion about what really are the different ordinances of the church. Here at Countryside, we believe there are only two ordinances. We'll come to that, but how do we decide what's an ordinance? Here, I want to share with you three factors that we can use uh, or a framework that we can use to understand what is an ordinance. Uh, first of all, it is to be one that is instituted by Christ. It is instituted by Christ. Secondly, it's taught by the apostles. And then thirdly, it's practiced by the early church. It's instituted by Christ, taught by the apostles, and practiced by the early church. And if we use this framework, then only two activities end up being ordinances. One is the baptism, and the second is the Lord's Supper, also called as Lord's table or communion or breaking bread. Neither of them is a requirement for salvation. So let's begin with the ordinance of baptism. Is it commanded? Yes, I have a text for us on the screen, but I'll read it for us. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the, it is commanded then. It, is it taught by the apostles? Well, remember in Acts chapter 2, when P Peter gets up to speak to the crowd in Jerusalem, at the end he says, you know, when they say to him, what should we do? What must we do? And he says to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice the sequence there. Repentance comes before baptism. Salvation comes before baptism. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, when Paul was converted, uh, Ananias, who spoke to him, he said to him, get up and be baptized. 
So it is taught in the scriptures. Is it practiced in the scriptures? Of course, the two references mentioned Acts 2 and Acts 22, they're also showing us that it was practiced in the church. But let's, let's turn to Acts chapter 8 as we look at a practical way in which it was done. Remember, in Acts chapter 6, we are introduced to seven deacons, Stephen being one of them, and Philip was the other one. And now we find Philip in action. Stephen, in the previous chapter, has just been martyred for his faith. And then in, 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 in Acts 8, we find Philip in action. Acts chapter 8, notice verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so the spirit, the angel of the Lord leads him. So he goes and he, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, who is a court official of uh, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And he was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning uh, back to Ethiopia. And while he was returning back, uh, he was reading from the book of Isaiah. And the Spirit of the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit rather, he's, in verse 29 says to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip runs up and he hears him read Isaiah the prophet. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31. And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come and sit with him. And then what happens? Well, Philip explains to him what he is reading. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe, notice the sequence again, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And what does he say? No, no, baptize me first and then I will believe. No, that's not what he says. Notice he says, he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So it's an ordinance after which you are admitted into the fellowship of the church. When we are saved, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, which is the church. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Baptism by water is a reenactment of the baptism by spirit. It's an outward testimony of the inward change in a believer's life. A Christian baptism is the means by which a believer, a Christian, makes a public proclamation, a public profession of faith and discipleship. I'm sure you have heard Pastor Tom say many times, it's one of the most encouraging services that takes place when it comes to our evening services. It's to hear how men and women have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're proclaiming openly their faith. Not only is it an outward testimony, not only is it a public profession, but it's also an identification. It's identifying with the Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection. After all, that's how we baptize people. If you're a believer, you are to be baptized because it is commanded by the Lord. Let me quickly stop here and remind those of you who are believers but not yet baptized that you must seek to be baptized. I'm happy to talk with you later on about this if you so desire. The shortest time I usually like to tell people between salvation and baptism in the Bible is three days. 
and that was the Apostle Paul. But there are times, especially when it comes to our children, we need to take time to make sure that they're showing the fruit of the Spirit in their life before we can say, yes, I, as a parent, I, I think you should get baptized. Th- those are exceptions more than anything else. But biblically speaking, when you become a believer, it immediately follows with your baptism. That's one ordinance. The second ordinance is the ordinance of Lord's Supper or communion. Is it commanded by the Lord? Yes. In Luke 22, verse 19, our Lord says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same uh, thing is repeated when we look at the Gospel of, of John. So it's commanded by our Lord. Is it taught in the Scriptures? Yes, it is. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, and he said, This is the cup of, my, of the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So yes, it is taught by the apostles. Is it practice? Well, if you're still in the book of Acts, go to Acts chapter 2. Notice verse 41. This is at the end of the Pentecost. In verse 41, we say, Luke records for us that then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so we see that practiced in the early church, and that has been the church's tradition even since the beginning of the church. Uh, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 some instructions before you partake of the Lord's Supper. He says we have to examine ourselves thoroughly before we participate in the Lord's Supper. Also, if you think of the Lord's Supper, this is not something that we will do forever. There's a time limitation on that. In 1 Corinthians 11:26, Paul says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That is an event that took place in the past. So when you're eating the bread and drinking from the wine today in the present, you're remembering an event, event that took place in the past. Until when do you do that? Until the time he comes in the future. In one sentence, Paul puts past, present, and future together. There are two elements, as you know, in the Lord's Supper. One is the bread that represents his body that was broken for us, that suffered for us. And then, of course, the wine represents and speaks of his blood, indicating the terrible death he would soon experience. Blood, as you know, from Old Testament times indicates life. He gave, in other words, his life for you and for me. In other words, then, communion is a time to remember what Christ did for us and a celebration of what we receive as a result of his sacrifice. So we've considered the meaning and the metaphors, the origins, the objectives, the organization, and the ordinance of the ordinances of the church. That brings us Sixthly and finally, to the marks of a healthy church member. How do we respond, respond 
to what we have learned about the church of God, the body of Christ? What are some marks of a healthy church member? Well, I want to share with you at least seven. There's a book written, um, two books that I I came across uh, as I I thought about a healthy church member. One, of course, you're familiar with. Our pastor wrote that book. Uh, It's the hallmarks of a church member, and he he shares three in them. There's another book called um, The Marks of a Healthy Church Member, and in it we have about 10 marks that the author mentions there. So I've looked at both of them and then combined them to come up with seven. Um, Here they are. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. Let me share that with you. A healthy church member is one who is genuinely converted. This should be very obvious. This should go without saying. In the book, What is a Healthy Church Member? Uh, The author states that 40% of his own congregation were at one point of time members of his church but they were not converted. If you were to hear the membership interviews that many of us are involved in participating in, you would hear the same story. Uh, For a number of years, somebody is a member of a church, but they were not converted. Nobody had shared the gospel with them. How tragic. How tragic. Who then is a genuinely converted individual? Uh, A genuinely converted individual is one who knows and understands the gospel and has repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. What are the elements of the gospel? Again, not wanting to go through in detail, and we'll have these slides for us, Lord willing, tomorrow. But someone who is converted needs to understand and know who God is. Not exhaustively, but at least as much as he is revealed about himself in the scriptures. He is the creator. He is the owner. He is a holy God. He's a righteous judge. Uh, He needs to understand who man is, that man is a sinner in need of a savior. Uh, Thirdly, he needs to know who Jesus is because that is the individual through through whom God has accomplished salvation for you and for me. And And then finally, what must a man do? Scripture repeatedly remind us he must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This author in his book says, Conversion is the radical turn from an enslaved life of pursuing sin to a free life of pursuing and worshipping God. Conversion, in other words, he says, is a change of life, not merely a decision. That is a genuine convert. There's an inward change initially, firstly to begin with, and then there's an outward change change. And so you have to ask yourself, do I truly love God? Do I truly desire to walk in light instead of darkness? Do I love other believers? Do I love God's word? We are as a church going through a series in 1 John where repeatedly tests of eternal life are presented to us. A great book to read would be 1 John. As you look at it and as you ask yourself, are these things true of me? First of all, then, a healthy church member is one who is genuinely converted. Secondly, he is a committed or she is a committed member. Now, you can't turn to a verse and a chapter to, to say, look, here it says, biblical membership is commanded. No, the Bible is not primarily a book of church membership where you go to a chapter titled, 
how to become a member of a church. No, that's not what it is. But the text is, uh, the text is not as obvious as that. But without the concept, without assuming the concept of church membership, some things in the Bible won't make sense to you. Now, what are those things? Well, three things at least. First of all, leadership in the church. You know, leaders are commanded to shepherd the flock. First Peter 5.2 Believers are to submit to their leaders. Hebrews chapter 13. There is no way to shepherd and there's no way to submit if there is no attachment, no commitment in any way. I mean, if you have people constantly coming in and going out of what is called as a local church, there is no commitment involved there. Secondly, the discipline in the church doesn't make sense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 13, Paul says, don't associate with an immoral person that is a part of the church, that is a brother in Christ in the church. Now, how would you know not to associate with one if that individual is not committed to that church? Matthew 18 assumes the same thing as we look as the, at the church discipline process. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons why we have church discipline is to maintain a clear distinction between God's people, the church, and the world that surrounds them. That's why we address sin when it comes up in the life of the church. And thirdly, the records in the church. 1 Timothy 5.9 talks about a list of widows. If you were to read Acts chapter 2, chapter 4 says, then 3,000 souls were added. Chapter 4 says, then 5,000 souls were added. Now, if for someone to record that, to say that, means that someone was recording how many individuals and who those individuals were. And so, without the concept, assuming the concept of church membership, these things wouldn't even make sense. Let me ask you, are you a committed member of a church? Or are you just hiding from one church to another? Thirdly, he or she is a growing disciple. It's a growing disciple. The health of the church overall is based on the health of the member. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, you are to grow in holiness and you are to be more godly than you were. A healthy church member, in other words, is a growing church member. He or she looks more like Jesus in their attitude of heart and thought and, and speech and action. How is this growth seen? By what, what are some visible marks of this? Well, Peter, uh, Paul rather provides us a sampling in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Uh, he or she is to be one that displays love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says that the intention of us being a body of Christ is so that we may attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. You and I, in other words, are to be growing. Fourthly and quickly, we are to be corporate worshipers. Our pastor calls it the priority of corporate worship. A healthy member 
prioritizes corporate worship. God created us to worship. We are to do this regularly and consistently as an individual, but also to do this on a weekly basis as a church. We are to be worshipers, says our Lord in, in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. What are some practical ways in which you can be ready to worship on a Sunday morning? Well, you are to guard your Saturday nights. Make sure that what you do on a Saturday night doesn't wear you out completely physically and mentally on a Sunday morning. As much as possible, avoid being on the road or traveling on a Sunday so that you can worship with God's people on the Lord's day. Also be willing to make sacrifices so that you are in the best shape possible mentally and physically to worship with God's people on a Sunday morning. You have to be a corporate worshiper. Fifthly, we have to be a biblical evangelist. Paul writes in Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And then he says this, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Make intentional efforts to reach out to others with the gospel of Christ. Uh, perhaps you might be saying to yourself, I just don't have the confidence to share. Uh, let me welcome you to the uh, evangelism class that, that starts in a few weeks and get equipped to share the gospel. Get involved in evan evangelism efforts of our church. But you and I are to be biblical evangelists. Sixthly, we are to be servant-hearted people. Now this one directly flows from how our Lord himself sees himself and describes himself. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In many ways, goes back to the thing that we, were talked about, that we talked about earlier, humility, servant-hearted. We are to be marked by a servant-hearted attitude. Look for ways that you can serve others. Uh, this is so completely opposed to the consumerist mentality in our culture which is focused on self-consumption. And so you want to intentionally look for ways in which you can serve others. Are you serving others? Seventhly, and finally, expositional listener. Now we've heard the word expositional preacher, but what is expositional listening? Well, expositional preaching is done when the main point on the, of the sermon is really the main point of the text. That what, that's what expositional preaching is. When preacher's intention is to determine the meaning of the scripture and then he communicates that meaning to the listener, he is doing expositional preaching. Now this does not happen just because someone is saying I'm doing expositional preaching. It does not happen because of that. I recently was listening to such a preacher who said he was an expositional preaching. He was talking about teaching on Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. In a 47-minute sermon, he focused on his own trials for the first 25 minutes. And of course, in, in those 25 minutes, he included a few verses, but he never got to the text. At the end of 25 minutes, he said, I have a few comments to make on the text in front of us. And so I quickly stopped listening at that point of time. I, I'd, I'd lost patience because it was a false advertisement. This was no expositional preacher. 
So just because someone says it is expository doesn't really mean it is expository. Expository listening then is listening for the meaning of the passage of the scripture and accepting the meaning as the main idea to be grasped for our personal and corporate lives as Christians. Uh, this is exactly what the Bereans did. Remember the Bereans? In Acts 17 verse 11, Luke records for us that these individuals from Berea were more noble-minded than the ones from Thessalonica, and this is what he says about them. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These were noble-minded. What did they do? They received the word eagerly. They, they were excited to hear from God's word as the preacher began to preach his word. They examined the word daily. And thirdly, they evaluated the word carefully. They received the word eagerly. They examined the word daily. They evaluated the word carefully. Even Paul, the apostle Paul, was not, not exempt from their evaluation. They looked at what Paul said, and they looked at what the scripture says. And they said, okay, Paul is really in line with what the scripture says. So how do you become a good expositional listener? And with this, I close. We've looked at a number of lists today. And so I want to end with another list for you. And that is, how do you become a good expositional listener? Uh, Christopher Ash, in his book, Listen Up, A Practical Guide to Listening to Sermons, gives us this list. He says, expect God to speak. Secondly, admit that God knows better than you. Do you come on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, expecting God to speak to you through his word, admitting that God knows better than you. Then he says what the Bereans did. Check the preacher says what the passage says. Check if he's directing your minds and hearts to what is written in God's word. Then he says this, which I had a little difficult, especially knowing that I'm also involved with our care ministries. There are some who cannot come to the church because of physical limitations. He says, hear the sermon in church, and I understand what he means by that, but those are more exceptions. But generally, most of us who are here can come to a church on a Sunday morning. Be there week by week. Do what the Bible says. Do what the Bible says today and rejoice. What a great reminder that you are to be active listeners. Don't just come because that's what you like to do on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings. No, come with a heart full of anticipation that I want to learn something new from God's word today that I can take and I can use it in my life and allow God's spirit to change me and make me more like Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for these great reminders and for helping us appreciate what the church of God is and to help us to have a high view of the church as well. Lord, we admit that we have not been what these seven qualities listed here expect from us as church members. So Lord, forgive us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the very author and perfecter of our faith. And help us to walk this journey that you have for us with faithfulness and with a full commitment to a local body of Christ. 
as we look to serving your people, as we look to fellowshipping with them, as we look to worshiping you along with them and in their company. Help us, Lord, to be a healthy church member, one that truly honors you with his or her life. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name.